This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, no bull. May 26, 2020. I hope you all had a great Memorial Day weekend for those of you who live in the United States. Let's get to today's economic news. Lots of economic news today. First up is the Chicago Fed National Activity Index for April. The level in March was minus 4.97. The actual level for April was minus 16.74. So this tracks economic activity all over the nation. So it shows uh, April was a very, very bad month, as we all know. S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Home Price Index came out for March, and it showed uh, a 0.4% price increase month over month in February. Forecast for March was 0.3%. Actual was 0.5%. So very good uh, relative to expectations. The 20 city uh, month over month was 0.5% in March or in February. Expected 0.6% increase for March and the actual increase was 1.1%. So almost double what the expectation was. That's very good news. And the 20-city year-over-year measure was up 3.5% in February, expected 3.4% in March, 3.5% was the actual year-over-year change. Again, uh, low supply is helping to prop up home prices, even though a lot of people can't really get out to buy one right now, although that's probably starting to change now as economies start to open up. The FHFA has their own house price index, and that came in for March today. The uh, index was up 0.8% in February from the prior month. The forecast for March was 0.6%, and the actual was only 0.1%. So much less strength in this index versus the S&P index. Year over year was five point, uh, 6% up in February, and for March it was up 5.9%, so slightly slightly less than in February, but pretty much the same. And consumer confidence came in today for May. Uh, In April, the revised number was 85.7, the forecast for May was 88.3, and the actual was 86.6. So, better than April, but not quite as good as expected. Still, it's good to see that number moving up in any shape or form. New home sales for April came in today as well. Sales were 619,000 in in March. That's at a seasonally adjusted annualized rate. Forecast for April was 495,000 and the actual was 623,000. So, better than ex- way way better than expected and slightly better than March. So, more good news there too. And finally, the Dallas Fed Manufacturing Survey, which surveys uh, manufacturing companies in the Dallas area, production index in April was minus 55.6, and in May it was minus 28. So still negative, but uh, much, much better than we saw in April. And the general activity index was minus 74 in April and was minus 49.2 in May. So much better there, too. 
So we're starting to see some uh, signs of uh, pickup in ac economic activity here, or at least not as bad as April. So uh, one analyst said April is probably going to be the worst month during this crisis, and it looks like that might be the case. We'll have to see what numbers we see for May, but we're starting to see a couple numbers today for May, and, and that's, that shows that uh, we're starting to come out of this. Very good news. And the market was up today, 529 points on the Dow. Uh, a lot of states are seeing st actually stronger economic activity than they expected as they've reopened. Uh, things like restaurants, hotels, and airlines are seeing stronger economic activity, both in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, there was also op optimism on a trial for a vaccine for the virus. So both of those things helped to lift the market substantially today. And now on to the main part of today's episode, and that is uh, notes from a webinar called Living in a COVID World that was put on by the Federal Reserve and was... Uh, attended by many experts in economics and healthcare. And I'm going to share with you the major highlights. There's, there's a lot here. I mean, they talked about a lot of things. So this, I, I hope you'll find this very interesting. So Tom Brokaw, as everybody knows who he is, he started out by uh, moderating the event. And I'm just going to share what everybody said in order of of the people rather than an order of the actual conversation. So some of these things may sound a little bit um, not really uh, related to the, you know, one comment might sound, talk about something different than the prior comment, but this gives you an idea as to what these experts are thinking about these different, uh, different things. So Tom Brokaw started out by saying, individual choices are important, but not if they endanger others. Liberty is coveted, but not if it threatens the greater good. So right away, he's coming out uh, and sharing what side he, of this, of this uh, issue that he's on. Uh, and he said, I don't think we can agree on the way forward until the election is over. And, well, I got news for Tom. It's going to be this way even after the election, if not worse, depending on how the losing side reacts to, you know, what's happening with the virus, what's happening with the economy, what's happening with their liberties and their freedoms. So, um, and obviously it depends on who wins the election too. So I don't think it's, it's going to, I don't think this, uh, uh divisiveness is going to be over once the election is over by any stretch of the imagination. He said, we need a big cohesive unified approach to the pandemic. Probably more, probably more worried. Oh, I'm, I'm saying this. I, I think he's probably more worried because he's, he's old and he's, you know, he's part of the older and vulnerable population. And so, you know, that might be biasing his, uh, his views on the whole pandemic. I don't know. I might, be, I might be completely wrong about that. He might have an awful lot of care in his heart for, for the people. I'm sure he does, you know. Uh, we all do, you know. We all care about all these people that are being lost throughout this pandemic. But I just wonder if maybe older people have a little bit more concern about it than middle-aged people or younger younger people. That's just my opinion. Um, be interesting to, I think uh, there was a survey done on that, that, that younger people don't worry about it quite as much. Anyway, 
He said someone should mobilize young people to get involved in figuring out what their future will be because it will certainly be different than, than what it was expected to be before the virus hit. Uh, travel and hotel industries are going to have a t very tough time making people feel safe. He's wondering who's going to lead us out of this wilderness. We need to move away from the idea that this isn't that big of a deal to the idea that this is serious and sacrifices are necessary. Sacrifice is much more difficult, though, he said, because uh, we're, uh, you know, we were just coming out of a very strong economic environment. So for people to go from really good times and having good jobs and good wages and good opportunities and being able to buy things and go places and do things uh, to all of a sudden shutting everything down, that makes it much more difficult for people to sacrifice much more than they want to or much more than they think they have to. Michael Olsterholm, my favorite epidemiolo epidemiologist, was uh, on the call. He said, we are in the first wave of this, of this pandemic. We need 60 to 70% infection rate to develop herd immunity. Right now, we only have 5 to 7% of the, of the nation is infected so far, 15 to 18% in New York City. And then he said something that was rather macabre. Every family will be touched by this. I would have to agree with that in some way, shape, or form. But then he said this, your time will come. I mean, what, why do you say something like that, you know? I mean, again, that is just hammering fear into people. Your time will come. Just, just not a necessary statement. And he said, decisions will be forced by what the virus does. People can't envision a two-year war with this virus, but they need to. We need an FDR or Churchill to get us through this. We need to think of new ways of contact tracing. We can't do it the old way. I'm not even sure what the old way was. I didn't even know that we did contact tracing for anything. But it sounds like he was thinking of, you know, we might need to do something different than either we did in the past or something different than what other countries are doing. Um, but some countries are doing it pretty well. So he didn't really expand upon what he meant by new ways of contact tracing. That, uh, But that concerns me because of where this is going and you know what we've already seen done with the economy and people's freedoms. What's going to come when contact tracing comes along? He also said, we are really hurting for information on how this virus spreads between people and in different facilities and settings. Now, uh, share a few slides with you here. He said, uh, the influenza is the Lion King respiratory pathogen. I think he means it's the top, top one. Um, 10 pandemics in the last 257 years, onset at any time, infection-related immunity and virus attenuation bring them to an end and the beginning of a new seasonal pathogen cycle. Coronavirus-associated pandemics, like SARS and MERS, do not currently have the biologic potential to cause a pandemic. What? I thought that's what we were in right now. A coronavirus-associated pandemic. I do not know why he is saying that. <laughs> what SARS-CoV-2 will do is anyone's guess. Herd immunity is based on the R-naught, which is the number of people that one person can infect. And uh, we're looking for durable uh, and short-term, well, 
he said, I don't even know what his last note meant, so I'm not even going to say it. Um, let's see here. Now, what was also interesting was he said that he, this is, um, H1, a chart of H1N1, uh, number of visits for influenza-like illness compared to cumulative doses of H1N1 vaccine. So, the one, the one line shows how many people went to either the doctor or the hospital for influenza, influenza-like illnesses in between September and September 2009 and January 2010. And it peaked in about late October of 2009. And it just so happens that vaccine doses were starting to be administered right in the middle of October. And then he went on to say that the vaccine had nothing to do with the decline in the number of visits for influenza-like symptoms. Yet on the chart, it shows it, it absolutely was a factor because right after vaccines were starting to be um, administered, the line goes down. The line for hospital and doctor visits goes down. So why did he say that? I have no idea. This man says a lot of things that just don't make any sense whatsoever. But I'm sharing it with you because I just want you to know, you know, these are the kind of people that are behind all the decisions being made about what to do with the economy. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It's just very strange, strange comments from this man. Um, possible pandemic wave scenarios, he showed a chart that one of them could be just kind of a up and down, up and down, up and down in terms of the number of cases and deaths. And another one could be a small uh, peak and then a bigger peak and then an even bigger peak and then a smaller peak after that. And then a third scenario would be a small peak and then a big peak and then a bunch of smaller peaks after that. So not, obviously we have no idea which scenario is going to play out, but those are just some of the different uh, uh, scenarios. And he's very, 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 as you can tell by his comments, he's very, very, very worried about an even bigger wave in the fall. So he's just doing his best to make people aware that that possibility is there. Maybe a little bit too much, but that's what he's uh, been saying. And now some comments from a gentleman named Sir Jeremy Farrar. And he is um, the director of Welcome Trust. I'm not sure what that even is. I think he's some kind of a doctor or medical healthcare expert or something. I don't know. Anyway, um, he said we... And he's from uh, Britain. He says... We can't get out of this unless the whole world works together. We'll see huge rebound in healthcare demand when, vi when the virus subsides and hospitals have more capacity to take on non-COVID patients. And that, you know, will help to support the economy. Uh, geopolitics will be affected by how we deal with this pandemic. We are just at the start of this. Coming out of an epidemic is even harder than going in regarding social and economic restrictions in healthcare. Need collaborative international science on public health, social science, such as 
behaviors and responses to mitigation measures, diagnostics, treatments, and vaccines. I don't believe in vaccine nationalism, he said. In other words, it shouldn't, we shouldn't be, you know, the United States shouldn't be focusing on creating a vaccine by itself. Uh, you know, it should work with other countries. And, you know, I agree. I agree. I don't think it, you know, I don't think we should be relying on any one country. I think they all need to work together, um, share information if they have some information to share that will help other people. And obviously when somebody comes up with the, with the cure, share it with everybody else. You know, it should not be, you know, a nationalist issue um, because we need to get people uh, cured and we need to get people back out in the economy and support economic growth and get jobs back. Uh, what sort of world, economy, and society do we want after COVID is a question. Inequality is a fault line we must address. Uh, re redefine, we will have to redefine the future, he said. So not quite, quite sure what his redefinition of the future would be. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different uh, ideas as to how to, quote, redefine the future. Um, and it will be political. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Uh, big office towers are a huge concern now due to high density and may not be in very much de demand going forth. What will cities look like post-COVID? That's a very interesting question. Here's one thing I was thinking of. Let's say let's say people the number of people going into downtown areas to work is cut by half, even after the pandemic subsides, because companies and people are getting so used to working remotely that it, it, it becomes a permanent change. Let's say that happens. What is going to happen to all the shops and restaurants and bars and all the other businesses in downtown areas across this country if uh, you know, the number of people that work in those downtowns on a daily basis is cut by half or even by 25%? What's going to happen to those businesses? You know, are some of those businesses going to start going out of business? Because even a 25% decline in business is a huge decline. So how is all that going to play out? That's going to be very interesting. Uh, he says uh, that um, closing schools is a huge impact on children uh, as they lose education and they're isol isolated and uh, possibly being abused by bad parents. Uh, other health concerns include suicide, substance, substance abuse, and long-term illness. Human-animal interface, uh, changing ecology and the way we live, such as dense urban areas, connectedness, climate change, are all leading to more frequent and complex epidemics. I'm not sure if anybody's proven anything in terms of the connection between climate change and epidemics, other than to say, well, if the temperature is going up and the number of viruses going up, you know, there would have to be a pretty pretty robust study on that rather than just looking at a chart and seeing, oh, yeah, it's correlated, you know. Um, I don't know. That one's pretty debatable. Every crisis brings lessons and changes. Central and South America are now the epicenter of the pandemic. Brazil is really having big problems right now. Um, and because they're in, it's it's their fall right now, uh, that's could be some kind of indication as to how the virus is going to act in the fall in, in the United States and in other northern uh, hemisphere countries. And so uh, healthcare experts are watching what's going on in Brazil very, very closely. 
numbers are starting to go up in Africa as well, and this could be a catastrophe. Again, like I mentioned before, African countries do not have very strong healthcare systems, and if this thing, if this thing gets as bad as it was in most other countries, uh, United States particularly, boy, I, I, I hate to think how, how that's going to be handled in Africa and how, how, how many people are going to die there. Uh, it's, it's a frightening, frightening thought. A UK death rate is among the highest despite having a strong healthcare system. Um, it's debatable about whether or not they have a strong healthcare system. I've heard people say they do. I've heard other people say it's terrible, so who knows. Um, we need unity in a time of crisis, but we live in a very polarized world. Yep. We can't have nationalism when it comes to vaccine research. It must be global. The world hasn't really gotten its head around the implications of this virus yet. We need to be thinking on a longer-term scale, three, four, five years out. Investing in R&D will help get rid of the virus, help the economy, and have us better prepared for the next pandemic. That's R&D. That's research and development in, in vaccines and other therapies like antiviral drugs. Now, Neil Kashkari spoke, and he was he's the president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. He said uh, restoring the economy is going to take, sh take stopping the spread of coronavirus. Uh, the U.S. is testing 400,000 people per day. Harvard said it should be 20 million a day by July. That would be a pretty big jump. 100 vaccines are in the works around the world, and 10 are now in human trial stage. So there's hope there. Congress can't support restaurants and small business for 18 months. There will be bankruptcies. So, you know, obviously a major, major reason why companies need to open back up now. Need to do it safely. They need to do it very carefully. They need to have health care, um, you know, uh, measures in place. But we cannot allow these companies to stay closed for much longer or they will go out of business. And again, so like he's saying, you know, we don't have an unlimited amount of money to give these businesses to, to, to support them while we keep them closed. They have to open back up. Um, now, this was an interesting comment. He said he's not comfortable with how businesses are reopening and making changes that appear to be giving people comfort but may not really be helping much. Um, he says it doesn't give him comfort to see people going back to restaurants. Uh, we said, why do people go to a restaurant if they aren't totally sure they will be safe and if they don't have to? Well, um, other people on the call said, look, you know, people think about risk in different ways. And if all you're going to do is worry about risk everywhere you go and with everything you do, you're never going to go anywhere or do anything. So, yeah, there's risk, but there's risk in everything, like driving a car, going on a plane, you know, dri driving a boat, and walking across the street, going for a bike ride. There's risks in everything, so um, people have to make their own judgments for themselves. Uh, he says, he's, this is my comment, it seems like he's way more concerned about the virus than the economy. And the funny thing is, he is an economist. So interesting that he's taking that viewpoint on things. Uh, he's skeptical there will be major changes after the pandemic. He said, not much changed after the financial crisis other than heavier regulations on banks. Um, there were big changes after the financial crisis, no doubt. And as far as I'm concerned, it's pretty clear that uh, those changes, those heavier regulations, while they hurt at first, have helped to uh, put a, uh, the economy on a stronger footing after the crisis and helped to avert another similar crisis. 
So there were big changes, um, but he doesn't think that there's going to be major changes after this pandemic. Um, I highly disagree. You're already seeing changes all over the economy. What are airlines doing? What are restaurants doing? What are schools doing? What are workplaces doing? What are sports uh, venues doing? What are, you know, theaters? And There's major changes all over the place. The only question is, are they going to last? And in that respect, I would say a lot of them probably won't because a lot of the changes that are being put in place right now so that people can go back to work and go back to restaurants and, and bars and all that kind of stuff, well, most of those aren't being opened yet, but are, are being put in place um, are, are, are very heavy burden on both the, the business and their, consu- their customers. So, you know, once the pandemic lifts, uh, I think a lot of those restrictions are going to be lifted too. And he said, people find it very easy to forget the impacts of crises once they pass. Now, next up was Lawrence Summers. He is also an economist. He is, uh, and he's former secretary of the U.S. Treasury. And President Emeritus at Harvard University. Professor and President Emeritus at Harvard University. And he said, vaccine or therapy breakthrough is worth it at any imaginable price. He said, basically he's saying we should throw as much at this thing as we possibly can. Losing 10 billion, we're we're losing $10 billion a day in economic activity. Money should not be a constraint for research. Redundancy is irrelevant if those solutions work. In other words, if you, if you have two or three vaccines and they, and they work in the same way and they have the same potency and the same uh, effect the same rate of success. We shouldn't worry about the fact that we're overspending um, and you know making two or three drugs at the same time that work the same way. He said that shouldn't be an issue if those solutions work. Government needs to provide insurance against failure for vaccine candidates. In other words, for the companies that are developing the vaccines. If we could now, this is this this statement uh, will blow your mind. I could not believe he said this, but he did. He said, if we could implant a chip in everyone that rang immediately when somebody got infected and take them out of society, we could stop the spread of the virus. Wow. That's about one of the most frightening things I've heard yet throughout all this pandemic. We're going to chip someone, we're going to chip everyone, and when this little chip rings, you are immediately put in quarantine. That is very, very frightening to me. Just the fact that people are even talking about that possibility scared of you-know-what out of everybody. But there are going to be a lot of people who'd be willing to do it, too. So um, I am not one of those people. Consumer behavior, is, is, consumer behavior is responding more to government measures than fear of the virus. Um... Consumer behavior is responding more to comer, to government measures than fear of the virus. Okay, uh, We need widely available and cheap tests for everyone. We should be spending at least 1% of how much money we're spending on stimulus packages on finding a vaccine. Taxpayers can bear the risk of vaccine research better than any one company can, but companies need skin in the game to ensure research and development is high quality rather than taxpayers footing the bill for all kinds of worthless research. That was an interesting point. The best way is to have taxpayers pay the majority of the cost for research that has a very good chance to succeed 
and then have a prize for the best vaccines. So just keep throwing money at companies, taxpayer money. International cooperation can be good, but it, but it can also slow down research. Too many ideas, too many people, uh, some more efficient than others are some of the reasons why it can slow down research. Uh, he would rather see you, the U.S. come up with a vaccine than, than share and then share it with the world than have a big bureaucratic international research effort. So he's disagreeing with uh, what the other gentleman said about, you know, having a more global effort. Looks like Lawrence Summers wants a more national effort. Efficiency is less important than resiliency. I assume he means the resiliency of the drug. Uh, he said he would pay an incentive to have companies develop vaccines in the U.S., um, he was a, it was a big mistake to stop funding the WHO, but the further the R&D is away from the WHO, the better, is what he said. Uh, funding for pandemics needs to catch up with funding for climate change issues. Spreading of the virus will almost certainly accelerate as the economy opens up. There are a variety of paths to sustainable control. Sustainable control, that's an interesting phrase, but we need to have strict enforcement of any of those paths. Strict enforcement. Epidemiologic policy is too important to leave just to epidemiologists. Now here's an here's a interesting thing he said. Epidemiologists have had the tendency to focus on worst case scenarios to get the policy responses they want. And this has weighed on their credibility. I could not agree more. There is a price to pay for a lack of trust in epidemiologists. Yeah, because if you can't trust them, then you don't do what you what they want, what they suggest. And if you don't do what they suggest, then um, if what they do suggest actually would help, and people don't do it, then we're going to have worse crises in the future, or it's going to be this. This crisis we're going through now could be worse. Um, the tendency for politicians is to give, politicians and uh, and the other leaders is to give epidemiologists what they want, so they're basically the ones driving this train right now. Uh, grants to airline industry are five times more than vaccine research. And he said that that is just scandalous. Uh, we need more. Much more funding for research and testing, he said. The right health policy is the right economic policy. It would be fantastic, he said. Now, this is also a very, very odd statement. It would be fantastic if we wasted money on vaccine research. Now, there's an elite comment. There's an elite big government comment right there. It would be fantastic if we wasted money on research. He said, if there isn't any waste, that means we haven't tried enough things. And by extension, I'm assuming he's saying we haven't spent enough money. Well, I got to say that um, it would be fantastic if we could come up with a vaccine without wasting any money. That's the way we should go. I understand what he's saying here, but... To say it would be fantastic if we wasted money is just a just a terrible comment. Some things people say, man, they really should say. Think about before they say them. 
Now this woman, Julia, Julie Louise Gerberding, uh, let's see, she is Executive Vice President and Chief Patient Officer at Merck and Company and former Director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Here's what she had to say. Mitigate, uh, the mitigation phase is trying to flatten the curve while sustaining civil society. Uh, we're, we've been successful at the first, but not so successful at the second. So we've been successful in flattening the curve, but not so successful at uh, sustaining civil society. Um, uh, a high priority to test hotspots that break out as the economy opens up. It should be high priority. Uh, she's frightened about low levels of immunization in the U.S. today. We don't need another influenza epidemic on top of this coronavirus pandemic. Well, that would be awful. Um, interesting comment. Uh, we need to vaccinate the world, not just people in certain countries. She says that's never been done for any previous epidemic. We need to vaccinate the world. She must have been having a conversation with Bill Gates recently. <laughs> Uh, it's very important to have a proven vaccine before vaccinating everyone because you don't want to have a vaccine out there that is either not successful or worse, has bad side effects, or worse, actually gives people the virus and then it spreads even more. Um, you got to make sure you have the right mix, otherwise bad things can happen. We need to think about research along the lines of putting a man on the moon it needs to be international in scope. So here, here she's agreeing with the gentleman from the UK, but disagreeing with Lawrence Summers. Uh, it's critical to understand the spread in schools, daycares, and colleges before reopening. Yep, that's, that's very true. That's very true. And we will likely see several openings and closing uh, several opening and closing phases, and it will be very hard on society not knowing what will happen from day to day and week to week. That's certainly not anything to look forward to. We need to figure out why children are at such a low risk for getting sick from the virus. South Korea was more prepared for coronavirus as they were still dealing with MERS and SARS, or MERS, and had contact tracing systems already in place. That's interesting. Uh, we need to have systems in place to deal with ongoing outbreaks of different viruses. We need to provide for a surge in health care needs in the next stimulus bill. We need to get clinics open again so people can get vaccines for other viruses. And we need to rethink the way we approach and deal with pandemics. Next up are comments from Margaret Hamburg, who is Foreign Secretary, National Academy of Medicine, and former Commissioner for the FDA. And she said, we must deal with both the virus and the economy. We can't do one or the other. We must open up slowly in a thoughtful way that follows the science and allows for tools we do have to work in an effective way. We need to do contact tracing. If the public doesn't have confidence in leadership and management of the pandemic, they will be reluctant to open their wallets and go places and drive economic growth. We need to have advanced marketing to ensure that there is actually a market for a vaccine. Uh, you know... A lot of people aren't going to want to get the vaccine, so um, I think this is interesting because, you know, what's the point of doing all this research and development and finally getting a vaccine and, also, and finally taking it to society and having, you know, a whole bunch of people not wanting to take it? And my question is what everybody's question is. Once they find a vaccine for this virus, 
Is it going to be mandatory? If they do make it mandatory, prepare for complete and utter chaos. Because people will fight back. No question about it. Just like they're fighting back on all these business closures and they want to get their businesses back up and running and get their jobs back and all that. If you are going to force people to take a vaccine, when many people are uh, skeptical of vaccines, eh, prepare for a lot of chaos. Now, uh, let's see here. Where are we? And, okay, um, yeah, so governments need to be willing to invest across borders for research and testing vaccines. Much more, she is much more supportive of international cooperation like the other two. Having standards in place for research and manufacturing would raise efficiency. Uh, we should look to the CDC for general guidance, but details of policies should be local. We need a better balance between mitigating personal risk versus community risk. In other words, people's decisions should be based on the risks themselves, but also take into account the risk to others. That's pretty much what she was trying to say. Early, mitiga early mitigation measures matter a great deal. Japan did a lot of contact tracing, and South Korea did a lot of testing. So there was two countries there that, that were able to handle the virus um, without having uh, a huge amount of fatalities. Uh, but they did it a different way. One was contact tracing, one was testing. Sounds like we're probably going to be doing both in the United States. It's important not to politicize responses to the virus. Yeah, good luck with that. Uh, we need private sector and government to work together on mitigation and research, and we need to invest more in biomedical ecosystem. Next up is Catherine Baker, and she is uh, the dean at the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. And she said, uh, we should open businesses that have the lowest transmission risk, um, but it should be up to local leaders to determine which businesses open. There's a high risk at fast food restaurants and ice cream shops, she said. Businesses need to make modifications or customers may not come back. Decision making needs to be tailored to local conditions. We need to get used to these changes as many will last for months. Policy response is different for two or three month shutdown versus uh, dealing with this for a year or more. Uh, we need common set of information from healthcare professionals. If people only worried about risk, we would never do anything. People need to keep their safety in mind as well as that of the community. How invasive are, her question is, how invasive are we willing to be with contact tracing? Yeah, invasive, interesting term, interesting choice of word. Uh, we need to spend more on R&D for vaccines in the next stimulus bill, and we need to focus more, more social impact. Focus on, we need to focus more on the social impacts on low-income and minority communities in the next stimulus bill. Okay, that's all for the comments from that uh, webinar. I found it very, very interesting to see how different people are thinking about all these different issues right now. And it kind of gives you an idea as to what could be coming down the pipeline in terms of policies and in terms of, you know, possibly what could be in the next stimulus bill and the general direction of the economy and, and when things are, you know, expected to get better. 
but it sounds like from today's news that uh, uh, things are looking better for the economy, and maybe uh, we'll be coming out of this faster than most people thought. We'll see. That would, I would say everybody would want that, but that, unfortunately that's not true. Not everybody wants to see a stronger economy, especially in an election year, and I will just leave it at that. But I think you know what I mean. Now for an update on the coronavirus itself. Uh, for the world, as of yesterday, the death rate was 6.22%, and that was down from 6.31% the prior day. And let's see, when was it? The, that is the lowest death rate since April 9. And the growth rate in fatalities day over day was a stunningly low, stunningly low 0.3%. That, I'm quite certain, let me just check. Yes, that is by far the lowest rate of deaths from one day to the next since the pandemic began. Excellent, excellent, much needed good news there. For the United States, we have a death rate of 5.85% yesterday, down from 5.89% uh, the prior day, and down from the peak of, what was the peak? Looks like 5.99% back on May 15. So it's coming down a little bit. And similar to the world, the growth rate in fatalities was a scant 0.5% uh, yesterday, and it was... 0.6% the prior day. So two days in a row of less than 1% growth in fatalities. Excellent, excellent news. Let's hope these trends continue. That is so good to hear. And now for my tip on, on how to stay sane during unemployment. And let me just grab that here. This is... We are now on to the fourth commandment, which is to be good to yourself, your attitude. And tip number 31 is do something that makes you happy every single day, whether it's big or small. Since I lost my job, I cannot tell you how this one thing Doing just this one thing has helped me mentally, emotionally, physically, um, and, and every, spiritually, in every way. Because no matter how bad things are for you right now, if you just did one thing that makes you happy every single day, it will go a very long way to helping you get through your bad day, or your bad week, or your bad month, or your bad job loss, or your bad loss of a loved one, or your bad loss of money in the stock market, or your retirement account, whatever whatever is, is causing you to have a bad day or week. Just doing one thing, even if it's small, that makes you happy, will help you tremendously. I, I cannot state that enough. Very, very important to do that. Your favorite, your favorite movie, your favorite music, your favorite food, Go to your favorite place. Talk to your favorite person. Um, whatever. Just do something that makes you happy. At least one thing that makes you happy every single day. That's my tip for today. That's all I have for today, folks. 
please subscribe or follow me if you like what you're hearing or if you find it valuable. Please spread the word to others who you think might find it valuable. Go ahead and listen to previous episodes for other tips on how to stay sane during unemployment. And up next tomorrow will be, I believe, Mortgage Applications, Redbook Retail Sales, Richmond Fed, uh, I believe that's a manufacturing uh, index, and Investor Confidence. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Stay safe and stay sane. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day.